Hello, Work Item listeners. We are at the end of the year. We're at the end of season three. And what an episode do I have for you today to wrap up this year. When we choose our career path, we often try to optimize for one specific bucket. You're a product manager or a project manager or a UX designer or any other variation of an expertise area in tech. Sam Sacconi defies the expectations of a single role and instead believes in being a plumber, doing whatever work is necessary to enable others to do their own version of great work. I sat down with Sam to learn more about his path to senior staff engineer at Google, what it means to brute force your way through problems, and what the best avenues are to become a force multiplier for your team. Enjoy the show. Sam Sacconi, welcome to The Work Item. So good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I am excited to dive into a number of topics today, but why don't we start with just talking through what are you working on these days? Yeah, uh, so yeah, so I work at Google currently. I've been there for a little over seven years, something like seven years, two months or something. Uh, my work page tells me every time I go to it, so I just know that date for some reason. So uh, what do I do? What do I do? It's a good question. I think the best distillation of what I do at my current job is I help people to do the right thing and to make the hard thing the wrong thing and the right thing the easy thing. Uh, so that's super generic, but really what it means is anything that gets in people's way to accomplish their job Um I find my inbox filled with those people experiencing those difficult, uh, <laughs> difficult challenges. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, I, I need a specialist computer to compile the code base, or whether it's, hey, I always have to get a code review from someone in Taiwan because there's nobody in the U.S. that can approve my code, and how do we detect that automatically and fix it? So, it's a lot about understanding developers' pain, developers' friction, and putting processes, putting programs, writing software, um, whatever is required to kind of unstick things and make things more productive overall for the entire organization, which is the organization I support right now is Android. Uh, but more and more, it's spanning uh, large large portions of Google, uh, which is pretty exciting and pretty fun to work on. So jack of all trades of some kind. Yes, or as my father would call me, the janitor. Uh, seemingly more and more of my life is that. So I'm carrying around a lot of plungers. Well, I'll put it this way. If there's one advice that I had in my career is that the the, janitor, the janitorial work is the one that's often underappreciated, but also very, very necessary. Pretty much everywhere you go, so you'll always be in demand. Yeah, it seems that way. <laughs> I want to start with something that popped up to me about your career. You're a senior staff engineer at Google. That's a pretty hefty title like you you have to work to get there yeah, it's it's definitely definitely a mouthful a lot of the people that listen to this podcast probably listen to this and say wow i want to get to that what was your path to that like you know granted you work on a lot of things but i'm sure there's some kind of map to it yeah um oh, i wish i had a map right i wish i could go back a few years and give myself that map uh <laughs> uh my path is one that's strange uh rooted in um i went to college for photography photojournalism and then i i kind of was nearing the end of my college experience i was like wait a minute these jobs are, are disappearing faster than i can apply to them uh should i perhaps 
explore alternatives. And, you know, I like, I like the process of figuring out how to put my pictures on the internet. Uh, that was fun. Uh, maybe I can do more of this. I kind of leveraged some internships that I had in college to basically like, Hey, um, at the time photography was transitioning. There was this big wave of, uh, everything should be multimedia and multimedia is really just photos sh- should have audio behind them. It should play when I visit a website and there was this big wave of all the news websites kind of being like, look at our, our video player that we're going to put everywhere. And, um, this was driven a lot by this engagement metric that Facebook had shared at the time, which said videos get, you know, way more plays, massive numbers of plays, massive number of impressions. Uh, executives at newspapers said, Oh my gosh, we have to do videos for everything. Um, and so I remember, specifically when this was, this was happening and you would show up for the first day of your internship or whatever, and they'd give you your camera and they would give you, um, essentially a cell phone at the time of just like, this is your video recorder and every assignment you need to take seven minutes of video and then come back and edit it and get it up on the website within 30 minutes. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And that was the cycle really. Uh, I distinctly remember being in North Carolina and getting a phone call at midnight because uh, I was the intern. So that was my job and said, Hey, there's a, there's a peanut storage facility on fire. And I remember driving two hours. It's like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. at that time and uh, taking photos of a burning pile of peanuts and then taking video. Um, so I, I think that got like 12 views on the website. So I'd say you know, viral, viral, as you would say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I took this kind of interest in, oh, our, our picture should be moving and we should have this audio component to, um, to learn, learn flash action, action script at the time and be like, Hey, I can make these website things and interactives. Um, and I sort of did more and more and more of those, uh, and kind of piggyback that one experience off of another started to build up a very rough portfolio of flash at the time. And then eventually use that to kind of, you know, work kind of this hybrid job of like, yeah, I'm at a, a, a news company, but I'm writing soft software. I, w- I would not call it software uh, anymore. Uh, I was writing code, uh, which helped kind of build a portfolio, which I was able to use coming out of school to apply to many, 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 many jobs. And luckily uh, a company was willing to hire me at the time uh, with a very sparse portfolio uh, t- as a designer. Um, so I, I started I think it was a year, year plus. Uh, and I think the majority of that year was spent struggling to try and understand Git and how how Rebase worked. Uh, I think like half of that year was spent just doing that. Uh, eventually, that job transitioned into me having more of a software engineering role, but I was always working with UX and, and designers. And I was very, very interested in how can I get this website to look exactly like the PSD. That's what we used at the time, Photoshop files. Um, so that was that was five six years of doing that, which you know, transitioned into a recruiter that came knocking. Um, driven a lot through my open source work. So uh, the job that I had originally was a lot of client consulting work. It was a great experience. Uh, if you ever have the opportunity, especially starting out, to go work at a consulting company, it's it's valuable. It's valuable in the exposure, the breadth of exposure that you get to many different projects, uh, you learn a lot of failure modes, such as the the narrative of the detached product owner, the narrative of the product owner that does no research, the narrative of the product owner that wants to build Facebook for cats. Okay, uh, so you're on the software side. It's not your job to choose what you're building. 
uh, it is your job slightly to choose how you build it, which is great from a, you know, I'm going to try all these different technologies, try a bunch of different things, learn why tests are important, learn why too many tests are not so great. Um, it's an awesome, awesome opportunity to cycle on projects every six, seven months and try a million different things. So while I was doing that, I got uh, increasingly involved in open source. I think you know my first big contribution that I, I felt proud of was like, oh, we were using uh, jQuery UI at the time to build a, a website, a, a mobile app, a hybrid mobile app, uh, jQuery UI wrapped in Cordova WebView. Uh, and I remember, oh, I want a, a range selector that I could set a minimum and a maximum value and jQuery UI didn't have it. I'm like, I'm going to contribute that. So I started this loop of, in my job, I was using a lot of open source tools, whether it was Rails, Backbone at the time, uh, React, Ember, and I'd find issues, I'd find defects, and I would go off to the open source world as part of my job and go fix them, and then pull that experience back into my job and be a more effective developer on the project. I really enjoyed that loop, that, 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 that let me contribute something and become more of an expert and actually learn a lot by tapping the entire open source ecosystem of like these amazing developers that uh, did, you know, taught me a lot about how to program and taught me a lot about how to architect code. And, uh, I use that experience to, to you know, do better at my job. And then it also started generating attention, I suppose, from recruiters and other people, uh, around kind of the volume of open source work that I was doing at the time. And that is what led to a Google recruiter reaching out and then uh, somehow miraculously me making it through the interview <laughs> at Google. Uh, and that's where I've been since. So, um, but that 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 actually doesn't answer your question, does it? Uh, your question was, how do you get to this uh, mouthful? It gets title? there, though. <laughs> uh, it starts <laughs> to. It path. starts to. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was hired in uh, at Google at at the bottom, but I don't care. Like whatever, it was Google. It is Google. Oh, sure, great. L three, L whatever, cool, amazing. I somehow passed the interview. Uh, I will take anything. Yes, of course, amazing. Wow, Google. Okay. You know, imposter. Oh, imposter syndrome is still high, but imposter syndrome at that moment was uh, as high as it could possibly be. A grind. I think a grind would be the accurate way to describe my progress of going into Google, knowing really only JavaScript, and you know, getting dropped into a team where everybody was writing C plus plus, Python, Java. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, the team. Nobody knew JavaScript on the team, uh, and Google has this thing called readability, which means you can't check in code in a given language unless there's somebody else that reviews your code that has readability in that language. But the goal there is to kind of keep a baseline quality across the corpus for languages and make sure it matches style patterns. My team at the time had web apps that they, that they had written, uh, but nobody had JavaScript readability. And even more, I joined Android originally. Um, nobody in the Android organization had JavaScript readability. And so my team at the time was writing JavaScript files in um, .js.txt files. Uh, why, why .txt, you may wonder? Uh, specifically because it bypassed the <laughs> restrictions uh, for code review requirements in, inside of our code review tool. So it said, oh, you don't need, you don't need JavaScript readability. You're writing text files. Wow. Uh, That's a way to bypass the checks that I have not that, thought about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so... I eventually found someone uh, in Chrome or somewhere that was willing to review my code in JavaScript, which helped me to gain JavaScript readability so I could finally do that. And uh, from there, it was a lot of my starter project. I, I joke, but it's the truth. I'm still working on my starter project that was given to me at the time, was kind of expose 
our build system, expose our CI infrastructure to Android developers and make that an easy experience. So right away, it's all about how do I make the developer's experience better? And the first, it's always been a grind, a little bit of a grind, but it's been a lot of understand the customers, work with them, say, what's hard about your job? What do you wish you could do? What's hard to do? What are your user journeys? What are you trying to accomplish in your job? And worked with them initially on a s- small projects. And my, as, my, as my context continued to grow about the product space, about the user workflows, about the developer workflows, the opportunities multiplied, the opportunities of what I could do, the opportunities about what I saw, the problems that I saw, the transient problems. I, in, in the role that I had and continue to have today, I hear a lot of complaints. I hear a lot of wants and needs. I wish the button was blue. I wish the button sparkled. I wish the button, when I clicked it, kittens jumped out of it. And my job is to understand the need, not what they're asking for. So the need, perhaps in that uh, contrived example, is I wish the button was easier to discover. And it was a better designed button. So I said, okay, how do we fix this? Well, do we even need the button at all? Why are people even clicking this button? Can I short circuit their entire developer workflow? Can I understand where that button lives, where they're coming from? And can I just put that information there so you don't even have to click the button? So those are sort of the loops that I'm doing constantly across wide ranges of things. So the path simplified, highly simplified, is how can I work with developers, understand what is blocking them from being productive, hear their needs, deliver on their needs, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. And while my context During that time, my context and my understanding of the business needs continues to grow. Therefore, sort of the opportunities that I see are bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you work on bigger and bigger things. And uh, as as my manager has always said, promotions, level focus, if you do good work, the levels, the recognition will come. And I think that's just a very fortunate thing about the team that I'm on and the visibility of the team that I'm on. But that has... That has played out for me. So I know when, when we were discussing a little bit before this, you had asked, you know, was there a, was there a question where you, fo- where you focused on, you know, I want to get to level N or reach this career milestone. For me, it was how can I push myself to accomplish these goals? How can I push myself to understand the customer needs, do better by the customers, and how can I keep doing that? How can I do it better and better and better and actually make an experience that's competitive, not just internally inside of the walled garden, of Google, but actually make it competitive with what people are using externally. If I'm parsing the insight correctly here, your focus is very much on driving driving impact ahead of thinking about the title. So the title itself is effectively a byproduct or an artifact that happens because of the work, but it's not the focus. Uh, strong agree. Totally agree. It's the level kind of followed, the the recognition, if you will, followed as a side effect of doing the work. Not, I did the work for the level, more I did the work because there was the opportunity and there was the need, there was the latent need that nobody was saying explicitly, but people were expressing through their, through their pain, through the shared pain. Um, and so recognition and levels and promotions and all that good stuff sort of followed from that. You mentioned that Part of the journey there was contributions to open source and specifically jQuery. And to me, my first you know, impression of that is that it's a pretty large product 
to contribute to, especially somebody as external that's not on, say, like the jQuery core team. Did you have any, you know, anxiety around like, wow, I have to like jump into this big project with a lot of standards and requirements and all these constraints and you're new to this? How did you see that? It was like initially very, I was very hesitant to to do it, but I found the more I did it, the more value I was getting from the system. So my brain, I rationalized it by saying, oh, okay, I'm able to spend my time doing this. Um, and I'm able to upload it and get these world-class code reviewers to review my code and pro- teach me how to be a better programmer. My my fear, uh, my my hes- hesitation to do this, my imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it, I was able to kind of mentally rationalize it by looking at the pros of the outcome. So not only was I able to contribute something and make the product better for my needs, uh, the thing that I was working on, but I was also able to grow as an engineer and learn more from these other people. The other side of that is so open source is one, but there's also consulting. And something that stood out to me is that you mentioned that the things that you learn in consulting are harder to learn if you're, let's say, at the, one of the FANG companies. How do you see, like, how, how is it so different that you would not get that same experience at, say, Google mm. as one of the companies that you're very familiar with? The opportunity to start a new project every six months, code zero, start a project, is incredibly rare. You And, and it's, it's rare to kind of start with nothing and then have, say, a year runway to work on it. And then at the end of that year, you it's gone. It's gone. Even if, if it's successful, it's gone. If it's not successful, it's gone. Both sides. So your job as a consultant is simply to accelerate and help them. The role that we had was to accelerate and help them reach that milestone, that MVP milestone, the product fit milestone that they're looking for. It was not the long-term maintenance of their code base. And starting from zero, you lo- starting from zero, getting to something that works is is a rare opportunity. And when you get to do that 10, 15, 20 times, you develop a very unique set of skills that is kind of uncommon uh, because you're, you're making trade-offs about how do I accelerate, how do I move with the correct velocity, and how do I make this code base at least somewhat maintainable, at least so it, it doesn't grind to a halt on month eight. As a con, you do not learn the full ramifications of your decisions one, two, three years out, which is a separate skill set that I think you learn a lot about big tech companies uh, or existing companies that have large existing code bases. You can't just do a rewrite every week. You're maintaining code that may have been written a decade, two decades ago. Why is this code this way? Well, it made sense at this time. Does it still make sense? I don't know, but we have 5,000 tests that assert that it does behave this way. How about we don't touch it? Let's just move on. Very different set of skills. Right. You were giving me flashbacks of the the early start of my career when I had to work on Outlook and specifically on Outlook desktop. And that is a code base that is, I want to say it's like Windows 95 is probably generous to say when it started and it's still in production and people still use it. And anything that you have to architect, architects around a lot of the abstractions that were decided then. Yes, it's a, it's a totally different way of of thinking and of operating. It's how do I add this in a way that does not incur massive overhead and massive cost? And is right now the right time to refactor? 
is right now the right time to upgrade this? So it's the, the, the consulting company model. You don't get that learning, but you get a very different kind of learning. Very, very different, which I think has been super valuable for me because I have these lists of failure modes that I experienced <laughs> and I'm able to take those failure modes and apply them to what I'm doing now. Like, hmm, okay, I know this didn't work. I know this didn't work for this reason. I know if we write 10,000 screenshot-based tests that we create a code base that I can't move in. So these are sort of the learnings that I'm able to pull forward into my, into my team around how we operate, what we do and what we don't do. And, you know, failures, you learn, for me, it's a failure is a great opportunity to learn how not to make that again, that same mistake again. There are kind of some very interesting dynamics that you're able to observe, especially in that first year of working in a code base. And then, you know, large company, when you live in a code base for N number of years, like my current project, I've lived with code that I've been, that I wrote seven years ago. Oh, wow. I wish I did that differently. Oh, wow. Okay. That was really expensive. Wow. Why did I choose to build something custom there? That was a mistake. Very different perspective. Like maybe I was making the right decisions if I was only going to live with that code for a year versus I'm going to have to live with this code for seven years. When you look at it across that, that sort of time horizon, your decisions change radically. But the, the experience and the value, kind of the value judgment on both sides is super, super valuable because sometimes you get into these thoughts of, well, in 10 years, is this abstraction going to make sense on day one? And that's probably the wrong conversation to be having if you're starting from zero. But none of that perspective, not thinking about that at all, can get you in trouble in 10 years. What is one failure mode that you kind of took away from that days of consulting that you'd say is not necessarily technical as in you know how to write code how to you know clean up different abstractions but more around you know like huh i didn't know it works this way what would it be one key thing that surprised me was the art of project management and the art of technical project management and breaking up work into small enough chunks uh, to have kind of steady steady deliverables across large time horizons or, or n number of months. I never really thought about that before I worked on a team with three, four, five, six engineers. And I never really appreciated the force multiplier of working with that many people and having it be well-organized versus not working with a program manager or a technical program manager and and having kind of chaos where you have a, a tech lead who's kind of saying, okay, here's the tickets that we need to do and let's do our sprint planning and I'm just going to take all the tickets and great, we did our sprint planning last month and I'm going to break off all these tickets into pieces and everyone's going to take theirs and we play whatever it is, roulette, poker, you, your call, whatever task tracking system you're using. Uh, the The value add of having somebody that's orchestrating, orchestrating the... The technical people side, so it's different than the TL. TLs are architecting, usually architecting the technical architecture of a system. The TPGM or PGM is architecting the how the technical is executed or organized and executed. Um, not having that person on a project once you reach a certain scale starts being very, very detrimental. And having a good TPGM on the project is unbelievable, kind of the in the the transparency that you're able to provide to your stakeholders and also the internal cohesion on the engineering team. So that's definitely something that I never appreciated before I started working on projects with multiple 
engineers, uh, and even open source. Open source typically does not have a TPGM. You have a, a TL, a, a original OG maintainer who's doing that work, but are they really doing that work? They're kind of triaging issues and getting some alignment, maybe in a Discord or something, but it feels like a lot of open sources, singletons that get a lot of contributions versus a cohesive group of individuals that are working towards a long-term plan. You look at React. React has formal project support, and they and they have a roadmap and a plan. But that's also staffed by a full time company. You look at something like Ember as another example that's doing something very bright and historically has done a great job planning and putting together a roadmap and long term support. Uh, those are more the outliers than the norm, I would say. And what's interesting too is that project management is very underrated. Like you never know the value of a project manager until you actually meet a project manager that's really good at what they do. Yes, the force multiplier impact of a good project manager is amazing, uh, very surprising. You yourself are combining a lot of those skills in kind of the engineering domain. Like I, you know, in our conversation so far, I can sense you have a good idea of like the product definition, the product skills, project management, engineering management, engineering productivity. How do you combine all of those? That seems like a such an, I want to say, uncommon trait where usually when you talk to somebody that is, you know, mid to late stage in their career, not well, not late stage, late stage is like CEO. I'm sure you know way more by that point, but like beginning to mid career, people feel like they need to be uh, siloed, right? So you have somebody that's like, I'm a product person. I'm an engineer. You're combining a, like everything. Um, what led you there? That's correct. Uh, I hear that a lot. I'm wearing a lot of hats. I actually have a bunch of hats that have different titles, and I swap them during meetings. I have my TPGM hat. I have my PM hat. I, I really do. I, I just don't have them at my desk at the moment um, as a joke. So <laughs> what led me to this spot? I, I will go back to what we originally talked about. So my experience rooted in this journalism, photography, photojournalism degree forced me to learn communication and narrative building. Uh, you know, how do you how do you write a story? How do you tell a story? Software development, project management, project lifecycle, customer engagement is all about building a narrative, telling a story. Whether you're trying to get a, a person on your team promoted, or whether you're trying to put together a narrative for, hey, let's make that purple button go away because of this narrative. Here's the customer user journey. A user journey is a fancy way to say a story. Here's the story. Today I have to go click these three links and then I have to click this button. Why do you even have to click the button? Why don't we just put it on the first page? Wouldn't developers be so much more productive? Wow, we'd save so much time. Developers would be so much more productive. Then we can go on to the next problem. It's a narrative. And telling the narrative effectively requires the ability to go pretty deep on the technical with your team to get them on board to be like, hey, to get rid of that button, we have to expose a new API on this service and figure out the right ACLs and put a caching layer in, et cetera, et cetera. And then also to humanize it, to communicate to people who are probably going to sign off on the project. So you're telling a story, you're building a story, you're getting your customers aligned, you're getting your leadership, if you will, aligned on the need and why you're justifying the work. And then you're getting the software engineers who might just be yourself in that case, aligned on what you have to do to make that happen. And then sometimes if you don't have UX support, which many of us don't, uh, you then have to go 
tell tell the story from a visual design or a user architecture or a user experience perspective. So you're telling the story across multiple dimensions. And when you combine it all together, I guess you get someone like me. <laughs> Good or bad. That's 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 how it comes together. What helps you acquire the skills that you need for it? Because I mean, realistically, they're, you know, talking to customers and then writing code and then being good at UX are, I said, there's a big chasm between all of them. How do you manage to kind of get good enough at each of them? <laughs> yeah, never, never good enough. Definitely not good enough. I, I do enough to deliver the MVP. And <laughs> what I find is if you're good enough to get an MVP out and people recognize the value that has just been added to the system, resources magically appear. And those resources are 10x, 100x better at whatever you did, uh, <laughs> which which is true. So how you get good at them is by doing it, by putting yourself, for me, it's putting myself in the customer's shoes, trying to understand what they're going through and writing down their story. And from that, so even if you are not good at UX, even if you're not good at working with customers directly, the root of all, all bugs comes down to asking a question, why? why? Why did this come to be? Was it a technical defect? Is it a gap in the product deliverable? Why, 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 why? Work down the list of whys. And so when you have that list of whys and you understand when you've done your root cause analysis on the situation that you might find yourself in, then you pick off what you think you can improve. Well, if we had test coverage here, this wouldn't have happened. Well, because this is confusing and we don't bold the text, nobody sees it. Okay, I think I can fix that. And where you don't have the expertise, that's where I lean on the experts that I have around me. So maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone at the company who you've never talked to, but they have UX office hours or they have you know, architecture review time. And that's where you go to those experts and you say, hey, help, I have this problem. I think you might have some insights and you start building those relationships. So in some ways, how you get better is by creating relationships with other people who are really good at what they do and learning from them and applying what they've shown you how to do to your problems day to day. Uh, very similar. You might be hearing analogs to open source. Uh, I, I take this philosophy of, well, I'm going to try something and then I'm going to go to experts and get feedback about my work and learn from them. And so how you get better is to recognize that you're probably not that good at it and then to go to people who are definitely pretty good at it and ask them, how can I do better? So it's always always learning, always pushing yourself to, to, to go a little further and to, to challenge what you think is a good solution with other people who are uh, domain experts, quote unquote. And I'm sure that there's probably pieces from your past experiences, you know, you kind of called out photojournalism at the very beginning that uh, actually helped you maybe conceptualize better the things around UX. Definitely, definitely had a, a few classes in uh, in design at the time. You know, what's 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 proper hierarchy? Hierarchy of information. How do you lay out a newspaper? Now, it turns out that different font sizes go a long way to draw your eye. What's the right way to put the most important information? Where should that go? How do you recognize when a page is a page, uh, an application when when content has conflicting priorities on the page? Does this really need to be this big? Does it really have to be here? How many people are actually interacting with that? So these are sort of the questions where you can take this more classical design, like we're designing a page that gets printed on a newspaper and shipped to someone. And there's no 
analytics on the page flips. There's none of that. But now we have this whole new world where we can instrument everything, where we can understand what people are doing. And so the, the concepts move very freely from, from kind of this legacy world where I came from to this new world. But the technology and our capability to understand how people interact with what we've built and what we've designed is totally different. So we can sort of iterate and iterate and iterate and tweak and make things better. When you made the jump, and this is something that I was actually meaning to ask from the very beginning from like photojournalism, and now you're in engineering leadership. What were some of the roadblocks along the way that was this a very kind of organic transition? Because from what you described, you know, you had a lot of opportunity to basically make that knowledge very much an applied one where you, you had a problem, you solved it. Then you moved on to the next problem, you solved it. Were there any challenges where you felt that going from something that is not necessarily a primary goal, did things get in the way? Uh, definitely. So many. Going from a non-technical background to deep, deep, deep in the technical weeds, there were plenty of times where I'm like, have I gotten myself in over my head? I've, de I've designed this checkout form. I distinctly remember one case where I've designed this multi-step checkout form all written in Backbone, and I was struggling. Big time. Like, ah, I've, I have created a situation I cannot get myself out of here. Uh, this is not working, and I don't know what's going wrong. There was a steep learning curve trying to build up the basic engineering chops that I needed to even get things done. So yes, constant doubt, constant, constant fear, constant, mm, is this the right thing? Am I doing this right? Am I ever going to be good enough? uh okay i can brute force my way through it and a lot of it was truthfully a lot of my experience is brute force i'm gonna try i'm just gonna work through it i'm gonna try a bunch of things fail 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 mm, okay sort of okay but maybe i wouldn't call it a pass like a c minus sure okay what did i learn uh, a lot <laughs> i learned all the different ways that that did not work i learned maybe a narrow path where it kind of works so doubt and failure was is was and is a real part of my my existence of learning and growing to be better and that's i suppose a willingness to put myself out there and a willingness to fail and that being okay extremely okay expected it's still hard it's still really hard when you fail it still hurts uh but that is how I know I'm learning. That's how I know I'm striving to get better. It's the reflection on the failures about how I can change my approach, how I can learn, how I can adapt, and how I can move on to the next thing and apply those learnings. It's almost developing a playbook for, oh, I know the shape of this problem. I've seen this shape before. The details are different, but I know the shape. So I should do step one, two, three, four, five. Whatever I do, do not take path C here because I know it leads to failure and pain. Avoid that path. And I should probably document why I didn't go down path C and put a link to the, my prior experience. That starts to build up these patterns. And in a lot of ways, problems can be somewhat pattern matched. Say, okay, well, I know the shape of this. I know the shape of this. This is very unknown. Um, so maybe I'm going to balance out the portfolio of my work to tackle things I know and tackle one thing that I don't know. And I know that's going to be hard and I know that's going to be painful, but I can leverage my experience about how I approach new problems to you know, set myself hopefully on a path to more success or chances of higher success on those things. 
so the transition, the the growth there, yeah, super, super hard. Very challenging. Very, very challenging. I'm using these generic words. That was hard, like super hard. Like, is this the right thing? Questioning my existence. Uh, <laughs> should I give up? Should I go and do something different? Should I, yeah, whatever. That was real. That is real and continues to be real. I, every time that I feel like I'm going down this very different path uh, and I and I do not find success, I always ask that question. Am I doing the right thing? I, I like the framing of brute forcing because I don't actually think there's a way around it. Like I honestly do not think there is anything different other than you kind of have to brute force your way through a lot of challenges. I don't know anyone that has had a very kind of or maybe there are people like that. I just don't know them that had a very kind of like stair step, like everything just goes along the way and it's a linear growth up. It's like sometimes you're hitting walls. You're like, I have no idea how to get through this. Agreed. And I also, I do not know anyone that has said that sort of progression as well. But if you do know of someone, feel free to point them my way. I'd love to learn. Call them on this podcast as well. I'd love to talk to them about the, their straightforward path to uh, to their career and growth. Something that you actually kind of, again, called out earlier, and now we're going back to this topic of imposter syndrome. It seems like, um, you know, typically occurs in a lot of folks that are starting early in their career, especially when you get thrown into a team. Like, I know I had that. I still have that. Going into a team of folks that are like significantly smarter than me, they've achieved way more, you know, going on, you know, engineering teams that have built entire like distributed services. And you're like, wow, these people know way more about this than I do. Why am I even here? How do you overcome that? Because it sounds like this is a perpetual problem that will follow you from level to level, from company to company. Is there a way out of it? Good question. Is there a way out of this? I would pivot the question, pivot the point to, I embrace that aspect. So I'm always going to be in a room of experts. Somebody, everyone in the room is going to know more than me about probably what I'm talking to them about. And I embrace that expertise. So the question I ask is how can I align their goals with my goals? Uh, sounds super generic. Let me give an example. So let's take Git. Uh, Git, the command line tool that uh, many of us probably know. Uh, Android has very, very, very large, a very, very large code base, hundreds of gigabytes uh, spread across thousands of Git projects that need to be checked out by a developer. Uh, turns out that when you start saying a single checkout of the code base takes 400 gigabytes, um, people start running out of disk space. And now people are ordering SSDs and extra disks and they're they're actually physically swapping disks from one computer to the next because getting source code is so hard and you can only have n number of checkouts on your machine and that runs into problems because uh, now you're having to remember which which ssd has which code base and it's a pain point so how how can we use that scale problem and align it with what the git core team wants to accomplish which is to make source checkouts fast and frictionless and easy Say, okay, here's our problem. We have all this stuff. And Git comes with this history. I can limit history. I can say depth one and only get the latest commits. And that's good, except for our developers want to be able to see what has changed in this file and view the log. So how can we work through that? And so we 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 tackled this problem, we explored this problem, and Git now has a thing called filter. And filter, you can pass the stanza that will limit 
the binary data that comes down. You can put some like filter blob, 10 megabytes, which will limit uh, which files are pulled down and will not pull down all the binary files. It'll just pull down the text files and the history of those, which cuts down Android source checkout by 20, 25%, which is a lot. Our developers are happier. The Git team is happier because they've now delivered a more compelling product, got some, some press articles written about it, about how it's better. So their ecosystem is happier. Android ecosystem is better. Better. So in that situation, what was the approach to your original question? You're in this room with this expert. So I'm in this room with the Git core team, the team that literally wrote Git with these people that have been working on Git for 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Okay, I'm, I'm the dumb one in the room. I acknowledge that verbally in the meeting. You all know a lot more than I do. Let me tell you about the problem our engineers are facing. Tell the story, back to our story, our narrative. Let me tell you the story. Let me tell you why this is hard. How can you help us? That resulted in an improvement to the core tool that not only Android developers use, Chrome uses, Chrome OS uses, every project uh, on GitHub uses. So it's an example of embracing the fact that you are not the expert in the technology, in, in that tool, in that service, but you are, in my case, are an expert in what your customers want to accomplish. You're an expert in their pain. You're bringing your empathy, you're force multiplying the pain that your customers are feeling. You're channeling all that into that meeting and you're bringing an empathy-focused conversation to that other team to see if they can improve things. So to your question, does this follow you around forever? Yes, but I think that's okay. And I think it's okay to work with, it's good. It's good because you're bringing customer pain, customer experience to these experts that want to hear how they can make their service, their product, their command line tool better and more compelling. So aligned incentives, usually pretty good outcomes. What I'm also parsing through is there needs to be a good degree of curiosity and open mind when you're coming into these conversations. You're not coming in with preconceived notions as to what you need to do for me or for my team versus saying that I actually don't know. That's okay. But I know these other things that are related to the problem space or maybe anything around the kind of existing solutions that helps frame it better. Yes, it's it's coming. It's not coming with a prescriptive how I want you to do it. It's coming with more a want and a desire problem statement and then working with the experts to figure out a solution and even a solution that omits the details of the how that will be solved but rather hey let's align on kind of a an ideal user path for what this would look like then they go off and the experts do what experts do and solve it in an expert way this entire podcast has been i'd say filled to the brim with very unconventional positioning of how one should think about their career. But I'm going to ask this question head on. If you would have to give somebody an unconventional piece of advice that somebody that listens to this and says, I want to be like Sam, what would you say they should do? Or what's the advice? Maybe they should not should do, but something they should consider. There, uh, a while ago, people on their desk used to keep Rolodexes. Uh, Rolodexes are just a fancy way to keep contacts. Uh, they can scroll through. Uh, I I recommend starting to build your Rolodex. What I mean by that is building shared trust with who you're working for, who you're, who you're delivering features for. 
more more tactically, let's let's walk through this. I'm building a product, internal facing product, external facing product. It doesn't matter. I'm building a product. A customer takes the time to file a bug. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a Jira ticket. Whatever. Whatever they however they file bugs, a bug ticket comes in. It says, "Hey, I wish there was a select all button here because that would make my life easier." That's it. You say, hmm, that's interesting. Let me write back to the customer who filed this bug. Hey, thanks for taking the time to file this request. Really appreciate you, you know, taking time out of your day and filing feedback. Really care about making this product great. Uh, tell me more about what you're doing. Why, why do you need this? Uh, what are you trying to do? Why, why, why? Okay, you get a response. Oftentimes you won't get a response. Sometimes you'll get a response. Person will say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're dealing with this thing where we have thousands of fields and thousands of, of, of items that we need to update. And it's really tedious to click all this. And sometimes the page reloads and I lose all my progress and I have to click all this over and over again. Say, like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. I can see why that'd be valuable. Uh, let me do that. And I, you know, I'd love to see why you're using the product this way. That conversation continues. You deliver that feature asynchronously. It gets shipped to production. You follow up. Hey, by the way, that feature that you asked about, it's live now. Let me know how it works for you. This cycle that I just described creates shared trust. It creates a relationship. That person goes into your Rolodex. Ah, I know, I know Sally reached out to me and asked for this checkbox. And they have a lot of clients. They have a lot of fields. That's, a, that's an interesting use case that we didn't know anyone used our product for. That's going to go in my Rolodex. Let's fast forward a couple months. You're working on a new feature. I I really want some customer input about what I'm doing, about this problem. Maybe you're not even building it. Maybe you're just exploring this opportunity. Like, I really wonder if somebody would like this. Let me go to my Rolodex. Let me, let me pull out some of those contacts and send an email. Like, Hey, it's your, it's your friend, Sam. Uh, just curious. What, what do you think about this thing that I'm working on? I have this idea. Would this help you? And you reach out to that. So you're, you're cashing in your, your trust tokens, if you will. And they come back to you and say, yeah, wow, that'd be amazing. Great idea. Also, if you just added this copy button, it would make it so much better. What this cycle that I just described establishes is you build up this list of contacts that you can use to vet ideas, that you can use to vet what you're doing before you invest in the engineering work. And it helps you actually iterate and deliver a better final product. So the unconventional piece of wisdom that I have is when people take the time to file a bug, engage super deeply. Take that as an opportunity to understand your customers, to create that relationship, to build up shared trust so that you can then work with them to deliver even better things. And what that does from a career perspective is it helps you be like, wow, Sam keeps delivering all this this really impactful stuff and his customers are super engaged and they're really liking it and they, they just keep saying that this product meets their needs and wow, what's going on there? really good. And whatever company reward structure happens, usually positive things fall out from there. So it's unconventional to take a bug as an opportunity to actually have more impact in a, in a meta sense. But that's, that's my, I suppose, unconventional recommendation. It's definitely unconventional because in my experience, you have a lot of folks that treat it as very much a transactional opportunity where it's like, yeah, I'll fix the bug. All right, it's out. You know, close issue, move on to the next one. I don't think I've heard anyone think through the system of how that actually feeds future customer insights, which I think is very important for any product. Yes, it's been it's been very, very, very helpful. Sam, where can folks learn more about what you're doing online? 
fantastic question. Um, I suppose my Twitter would be the most up-to-date resource that I have. You can search my name and that will come up on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll link it from somewhere as well. We'll link it from the show notes. Excellent. Sam, thank you so much for being here. It's been a delight. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.